This is the Macworld Podcast, episode 514 for June 29th, 2016. Hello, folks, and welcome back to the Macworld Podcast. I'm Glenn Fleischman, a senior contributor at Macworld, and joining me this week is Leah Yamshan, the associate managing editor of Macworld. Hello, Leah. Hi, Glenn. How are you? I am fantastic. Well, with Susie gone, we should uh, we should tell scurrilous rumors about her, obviously. She'll, oh, she'll so, never know. so many rumors. She's so great. All the That's whispering. the problem. That's the problem. She's so great. It's very hard to tell rumors about somebody who's very kind. I know. <laughs> What are we going to do about that? Well, we'll have to make things up. We'll just have to sing her praises instead. That's right. I know. Well, her ears are burning somewhere in the Midwest. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it has been a a quiet week, and we'll talk about that. This last week, uh, it's, you know, we're getting into uh, those various periods of the year that are doldrums, and there's some anticipation brewing. I keep hearing people start to talk about maybe MacBook Pro revisions are coming in August. I've heard Mm. some buzz about that. So, Maybe that will happen, but that's weeks away. Uh, in the meantime, we'll just be diving into stuff that, uh, that's been announced that we can talk about new hardware and software coming out. Um, we've got later in the show, I interviewed uh, Fraser Spears uh, from Scotland separately. He's involved in secondary education and is a developer, and I talked to him about Swift Playgrounds which is part of or will be released along with uh, the iOS 10 uh, developer and uh, I believe public betas. Um, he and I are both running developer betas um, and uh, – He's checked it out, so have I, and so we talk about the use of Swift Playgrounds as a pedagogical tool for learning programming for kids and adults. That's so awesome. That was one of my favorite parts of the keynote, and I was kind of bummed that it was, you know, smushed at the very end because it it seems like a really neat tool. So I can't wait to listen to that interview. That'll be fascinating. It'll be fun because I think I, – I know it's it's intended for kids, although um, it's definitely going to be something that adults will dive into because it is so dang friendly that even if you've been – you know, there's a lot of people who are afraid of programming. They think of it as something that's very apart from what they do. And mm-hmm. just getting a taste of it is nice. And so uh, I went through – I spent about an hour, hour and a half with it, and I've been programming different languages for, for decades, um, and I've read a little of Swift um, Apple Swift language. And um, it's it's very friendly and it's very funny. It's got this goofy little cartoon character. And um, it's uh, probably – uh, it doesn't seem too patronizing to me. It seems like like the right balance between twee and uh, useful. So we'll – That's great. I feel like Apple wouldn't make something that was going to, you know, dumb down to its customers though, you know? No, that's I feel the like thing. they knew that adults would be interested in, in checking it out too. So if it's something especially that parents can learn along with their kids, I think that's awesome. Oh, yeah, it's great. And it's it's the real Swift language. That's the thing. So you're not learning a um, pseudo language or something that's kind of off to the side. It's the gateway drug to becoming an app developer, of course. Uh, we'll see. Of course. We'll see what <laughs> happens. Uh, so I think we should lead the show with that goddamn headphone jack is my note. Oh, my God. Pardon me for swearing. Um, I feel like the headphone jack story just doesn't end. And um, I was looking up, we did a, a point counterpoint on it back in December about yeah. at Macworld.com. Uh, so there's even more. I mean, have you been following this? I'm almost trying not to because I feel like it's a it's like a Schrodinger's uh, headphone jack. Until it's removed, does it matter if it's removed or not? There's nothing we can do about it either way. Yeah. I think iMore had a headline this week and it was like, nobody knows anything about the iPhone 7. <laughs> and it made me laugh because it's so true. Every week there's – it's the headphone jack's there. No, no, no. Now it's not. No, maybe it'll be there. No, no. It's definitely not. And I mean I read it just to see if there's anything, any new like hints as to why it's not there or where this info is coming from. But it's just exhausting. And it's like – 
I guess it's just funny that that's the biggest thing in the iPhone rumor mill besides um, new colors and maybe some different like space configurations. But the headphone jack is like the hot button issue of this phone. And I almost don't care at this point because we don't really know what to expect with it, you know? <laughs> I think, yeah, I have the same opinion. I mean, you know, we, we have an iPhone 7 rumor roundup that keeps getting updated. Mm-hmm. And uh, Caitlin and Oscar, I think, are on that. And um, they keep adding to it and, and sticking things in. But it's partly because people keep asking, like, all right, what's going to happen with this? Like, all right, well, here's the best we know. I have this suspicion, and maybe um, I'm being too cynical, but I think, uh, you know, could Apple have been, uh, like, seeding multiple different rumors just to <laughs> just to to throw people off. Yeah, exactly. It used to be. So there's. I had a friend who worked at Apple when uh, Jean Louis Gasset was there. And Gasset did this thing that's often done in companies. They seeded different product uh, code names to different parts of the siloed company. So if something leaked, they could figure out what department it came from. Oh. I was like, is Apple putting out like 50 different rumors about the iPhone Seven and handing them off in different parts and just seeing what gets out to trace it back? I don't know. Wow. I mean, is it possible that they are thinking of two different designs for the fall and one has the traditional headphone jack and one doesn't? I I would have a hard time believing it because I feel like they have their kind of flagship thing where they're in sync mm-hmm. with almost everything. I mean, I think the uh, the the regular size and the plus isn't the primary difference besides size uh is the uh optical stabilization on the right. plus, but everything else is identical if I remember right. I mean, they still have the iPhone SE in the in the mix for you know the indefinite future with the headphone mm-hmm. jack. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I think th- this is what the debate comes down to. I think is is it anti-consumer to remove the headphone jack and require a proprietary connector or adapter, especially because we know Apple almost never ships or offers for free an adapter. So that's you know that seems to me very much an issue, but. Yeah. Um, Otherwise, like, well, we're still, you know, they're going to do it or not. They may want, you know, it doesn't doesn't hurt to offer feedback in the sense that uh, uh, maybe Apple's listening, if, but it's too late for this design. If they've already put a lightning, if they've already moved the headphone jack, it's already been locked in for months. Right. Know? I mean, when Apple did away with the 30-pin connector and added the lightning connector, people were upset for the same reasons. But I feel like that's a bit different than the headphone jack because that just closes the door to so many different you know, models of of headphones out there. And even if there are some pretty solid Apple-branded headphones and earbuds or Beats-branded headphones and earbuds that are compatible with the Lightning adapter, it'll take a while for more third-party options to hit the market unless these manufacturers have already been tipped off and they're already working on some things. But Then I think we'd hear more because manufacturers are so leaky about that kind of thing. I mean, the real issue that I keep hearing coming back to is the – it's the – uh, what is the MFI program? It's that Apple requires Lightning devices, you know, to be certified. And there's a higher cost mm-hmm. because Lightning requires like a tiny computer. You know, uh, uh, audio cable doesn't require it. And Lightning cables have circuitry in them, um, uh, just like uh, USB-C and Thunderbolt. Like they're, they're, not, um, they're, not this, they're not just a dumb cable in some ways. So uh, I remember when someone up, cut one open and looked at what was inside the thing. And it was sort of amazing. Um, so that adds a lot of cost. Uh, I mean, especially it's like, I think if they shipped a headphone adapter, there might be less concern. But the real question, I think this is the Verge raised this question. I've seen it elsewhere too. Is does this convert confer any benefit to consumers? And the answer is kind of no. I mean, maybe yeah. you get superior headphone quality out of it. The audio quality is better, but I don't. That doesn't seem like enough 
to be worth the change. But it's just funny. I think there's so little going on with it that the headphone jack's getting so much attention. Right. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, you know, it's also, I wrote this piece a few weeks ago about the tick and talk cycle, just kind of mm-hmm. tracking down what Apple had done in each of these. And this is a tick year, which means it could have different external hardware features, but they don't usually make big hardware changes until the talk year. They ain't kind of under the surface. So I don't know if they do something as major as that in, uh, in this year either. Um, and in the past, they've signaled it. Like when the 30-pin dock to lightning change happened, it seemed like everyone kind of knew the dock was on its way out because it had a lot of limitations and uh, even like the amount of power you could run over it and uh, sure. a number of other issues and compactness. And um, there's no particular reason to remove the headphone jack. I mean, they don't need to do it for size, really. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I've got a MacBook. I've got a 2015 MacBook. It has the one port and it has an audio jack. <laughs> Even with that one, they didn't give it up. So that uh, would just be going too far. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but speaking of giving things up, uh, a word came out this week that the Thunderbolt display is finally uh, pulled from the market. Um, we haven't heard anything about new displays, have we? I don't think so. I don't. I mean, not from Apple, but I, I feel like there was some buzzing about that before WWDC. But mm-hmm. um, Thunderbolt display is pretty out of date. Um, Susie likes to point to. I've forgotten the site. There's a site that tracks um, when hardware is going to get refreshed, or how long it's been since hardware is going to get refreshed, and recommends that you get, uh, you know, you watch for it. So it tracks all the models and has like red, green, yellow buttons. And a lot of the a lot of Apple's Macs are in that red situation. Like, don't buy. Something's going to come. Uh-oh. But the uh, the Thunderbolt display would be like black. Like, you know, this thing is dead. Um, it's been so many years. I get email all the time to the Mac 911 column from people saying, I have a Thunderbolt display. Can I use it with my USB-C only mm. MacBook? And it's like, well, no. I mean, there's, you could get, I actually figured out a system where you could get three separate adapters I don't have a Thunderbolt display, so I can't test this. It might work, but there's other reasons why it might not. So, <laughs> wow, yeah, it's uh, it's strange. I mean, it's the fact. That, I mean, remember the cable is um, built into the monitor too, so mm-hmm. you can't remove it. It's like hardwired in. Yep. Uh, so they could have future proofed it. There actually would have been the potential to have um, if you could actually remove the cable from the back and it had a standard Display Port or other kind of connector. Uh, there would have been a way to. Um, to then use it with newer machines, but no, but no, it was fancy. Um, do you think the the new MacBook with the USB C only port? Do you think that was a sign of uh, Thunderbolt being on its way out? Well, yeah, I mean, it's. I feel like Apple sells some things because they forgot to stop selling them. Is what it feels like. <laughs> I mean, I'm sort of kidding, but it's like they can. They have only so much focus they can split. And the the uh, airport. Um, Extreme and Time Capsule, I think it was last week, there was uh, word that those were not on sale anymore at Apple stores. And I haven't been able to to verify that. I don't know what the follow-up was. Uh, but there's some concern, you know, is, was there a patent issue? There's some patent lawsuits related to Wi-Fi. Did Apple pull them from sale to minimize, you know, payout they might have to make? Are they redesigning them? Uh, Apple's base stations are kind of out of date compared to uh, a competition on the market. A lot of features that Google and um, startups are putting into new uh, base stations and um, Apple doesn't even have, you know, uh, there's no home kit uh, center hub in its mm. base station. It doesn't have Bluetooth. Um, it's sort of less advanced than the uh, new Apple TV in a lot of ways mm-hmm. in terms of what it does with uh, Wi-Fi and uh, home automation. So maybe Apple's got new airport products coming, but those were sort of forgotten because they just sold and they're expensive. So they had high margin. I feel like the Thunderbolt display was a little bit of the same thing. It wasn't a cheap item. It, right. uh 
I'm sure they kept selling them, but did they, does Apple really care about monitors today when they have iMacs? I mean, it almost makes more sense to buy an iMac than a monitor. Oh, sure. I mean, the Apple monitors are pretty expensive too. So if you're already going to be shelling out, you know, that kind of money, just going for the iMac kind of makes more sense in a lot of ways. Um, there is the 5K issue. There's talk about them producing a 5K monitor instead of a 4K one. And that's interesting because, you know, there's there's a lot of commodity ones. You don't have to spend a fortune to get a 4K monitor anymore. That's uh, that's pretty good. And um, Apple's got its 5K display. Um, and conceivably, it could sell a monitor version of that, uh, even if it was uh, – with all those issues about uh, people have said that it would need to have its own GPU card inside the monitor to drive it. Uh, but that may be a potential market where they could have enough margin and have enough of a differentiation. But do they really want to be competing against, you know, Dell or Asus for – uh, the monitor business, it seems like that time has come and gone. Right. Especially if we're looking at price, too. Um, yeah, because so, they, they can't make 30% on a monitor yeah. <laughs> anymore. No. Um, so I wonder if there is hardware to come, what do you think Apple's release cycle would be like with that? Because we haven't really seen anything in um, in the Mac line since the new MacBook, so... Yeah, it's weird. I would have expected – I kind of thought in the spring they might release uh, the revised airports and maybe the display at that point uh, because they often in the past done kind of weird little hardware refreshes in May or March, sorry, and um, mm-hmm. sometimes April. And then I've recalled the past sometimes in October. I know one year they released the new Mac Mini and in October it was apparently very late and Cook said something about air freighting stuff over. Oh, no, I think it was in a, call, a call. He said we'd have significant uh, freight expenses, something like that. And then the the Mac Minis came out after that, and some other models were like, oh, they're air freighting those from China because they were late and they want them out for Christmas. Um, but it's not unheard of to have a kind of non back to school, non Christmas item uh, ship in fall. Uh, you know, and Apple I think has gone to a cycle of shipping when things are ready instead mm-hmm. of when they feel there's an obligation. But they're just so. I mean. On the Mac side, they're just so behind. The Mac Pro is is so out of date. Um, yeah. The iMac is the only thing I think that's reasonably up to date. Uh, MacBook Pro, uh, MacBook Air is probably never going to get more than those minor refreshes it's, they've done. So it feels like there's kind of a tiredness on the line compared to uh, other computer makers. But, of course, they're dependent on Intel cycle and, and some component cycles, especially things like uh, with Thunderbolt 3 where they need, uh, you know, they're buying controllers that use chips from other companies Mm -hmm. and that technology has to be mature too. So I don't know. I think there's going to be a big explosion of of releases at some point because whatever the blockade is, it's going to break and they're going to push a ton of stuff out because they don't want to, I mean, they want to keep selling Macs. Macs make them a lot of money. Yeah, I think so too. I I kind of think we're going to get maybe one event that's just focused on the Mac oh and that gosh. would make so many people so happy. That be, that'd, that'd be pretty fun. Well, they could, um, they could time it with the, you know, they could cut out iOS 10 and then have an event the next week for Sierra and have the Sierra thing coincide with new models too. That's that, true. That's not unheard of. I think they have in the past released a new operating system and new hardware at the same time without necessarily announcing the, that they were coming out with hardware too. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'm yeah. oh, sorry. I think, Oh, I think two, I think it was in 2014 we had an event in September and then another event in October. That's right. So yeah. it's possible that we could have the big iPhone launch and iOS launch um, in September and then Sierra and Mac stuff in October or switch, you know, have Macs first in September and iPhone stuff in 
October. So I don't know. I don't know. Tea leaf reading. We're just trying to figure out because it's it just seems. I mean, that's again a common frustration I've been hearing from people is that they want to buy a new Mac. They're ready to do it, and these are the loyalist users. They're not you know fanboys and fangirls. They're they're just loyal Mac users. They want to refresh. And they're like, well, I don't want to be a dope. People, you know, I just got a, a friend of mine on Twitter said, ah, I want a new MacBook Pro. Is it time? And I pointed him to that site that hasn't said like, nope, this you really shouldn't buy one now. Yeah, you hold on because. This is the worst possible time. You'll get the you'll get the worst um, uh, dollar to hardware value at this moment compared to X days from now. But X could be two mm-hmm. months or it could be four, uh, mm-hmm. and that's frustrating for people. Not that Apple should announce every model it's coming out with, because then it puts um, unnecessary time constrictions on it, and you know that leads to compromises or unhappiness too. But sure. um, it does feel like they're they you know they got a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. Watch 2 is going to come out at some point, for instance. When is Watch, you know, the Watch 2.0 hardware coming? Who knows? Oh, I don't know. But I kind of <laughs> I kind of appreciate that Apple hasn't rushed out the 2.0 version of the Watch yet. And they've just kind of, like, let the first Watch kind of run its course. And they've, like, updated the – they've released some new colors of the sport, for example. And um, it's – I think because I'm, like, a first-gen Apple Watch owner, I still feel like – I have the, you know, the latest and greatest, and I'm, I'm not feeling like, oh, man, one just came out, like, right after I bought mine that's even better. So I, I think it's kind of been a reward to the early adopters on the case of the watch. Did you bite the bullet and install watchOS 3 beta? I have not. <laughs> I know. It's kind of – I've heard so... – well, because people are worried it might cause problems. People are so – I do not own a watch at the moment. I may have to buy one, and I'll wait for the next iteration. There um, you go, yeah. I sold mine because I didn't feel watchOS 2 was that great. I'm hearing so many positive things, even from the beta of watchOS 3, where people are like, this is a whole new ballgame um, because, as as uh, uh, Fra- uh, Craig Friederiki discussed, they left a lot of overhead because they didn't know. Um, There's been a lot of interesting discussion about the fact that when – watchOS 1 was designed, and you have to think like they're even working on 2 while 1 is being released, uh, the developers didn't necessarily have access to the hardware, and they weren't walking around with it extensively. So they didn't know what it would be like. They didn't know what it would feel like, because they made a lot of guesses, and they sort of guessed wrong. And watchOS 3 is that culmination of, hey, maybe we didn't understand this as well, so let's Mm -hmm. do a reboot of the whole OS without destroying the ability to install apps. But um, And I'm not sure how much developers are going to have to change to uh, come into accordance with the new OS either. It doesn't sound right. like a terrible amount, but um, but I think it's neat that they're essentially, um, I think Jason Snell discussed this on another podcast, that it's almost like they did a hardware refresh because they're using so much more of the CPU and battery than uh, that they had left in reserve. So you're getting almost a faster watch because they're willing to burn more uh, processor cycles in this mm-hmm. new release. Do you use yours every day? Are you are you aware and uh, and make use of like a, you know the stand set functions and things? You know, so I was a daily wearer, and a couple months ago, I cracked my iPhone screen, and uh, I went to go replace my screen, and they said, you know what, this is pretty damaged. You should just replace your whole phone. So I did, but when you do that, you it wipes your watch. Oh, so right. and I was so upset about it because as Susie often talks about, like this, there are fitness like activity rings all of that data just got lost and so i was super bitter about it and i haven't <laughs> paired my watch with my new phone so i haven't worn it in a couple of months and um i'm i'm i miss it though like there are i i, I thought that it would feel more like freeing but i really kind of got used to a lot of um 
the features that the watch had, even just for incoming notifications. So I'm going to get it set up. I don't have the iOS 10 dev beta on my um, primary iPhone. I have it on an iPad. So I don't know if I want to, I don't know if I want to put the beta on my phone. And then that means I can't really have watch OS 3 set up on my watch. So I'm not, I don't know. I got to think about that whole setup. It's, yeah, it's going to be tricky. When I can't, I think Susie and I talked about this last week. We're not sure if the iOS 10 public beta, or should know the public betas, we believe from what Apple said, uh, iOS 10 and uh, Mac OS Sierra public betas will be coming in July. Yes. Um, and I'm not sure if Watch OS 3 public beta, or if there's going to be a public beta of that. Yeah, I don't know either. I I would think maybe, but that seems much more risky. Like that's, mm-hmm. if your watch crashes, it's very hard to, um, to, I mean, that's a lot more of a tech support thing than people have to go in or send it in. And Apple doesn't really want to support the betas, you know, per se. So they right. may, I'm assuming maybe watch, uh, app in iOS 10 public beta will totally support watch OS two as a backward compatible thing. Cause otherwise mm-hmm. it just sounds like a mess. Um, but that'll that'll be interesting when that comes out. Then you have a easier choice, though, at least, and you can install Dev Beta if you have to. But um, I don't know. I just I like the fact that I mean I thought Apple was taking a risk by having such a long hardware refresh cycle on it, uh, even though it was gonna it would annoy people like you. It would annoy people who are early adopters who then felt like, well, I bought the crap 1.0 version and now 2.0 is so much better. Having two years between it is kind of cool if that's what it winds up being. But the other is. Just this thing is, if watchOS 3 makes it feel like you have a new watch, then hey, <laughs> they they totally. managed to achieve it. It's like you got a hardware upgrade in your software. Um, yeah. And then in March or whenever they decide to do the next cycle of uh, watch release, it won't feel as painful because they'll mm-hmm. have to make it that much better. They'll have to put that much more capacity or features in it. Mm-hmm. I assume they've got to be working towards GPS. I think cell, from what I've heard, is further off because of uh, – power requirements and other issues. Um, but I have to think they want to get GPS in the next watch release because that's the thing yeah, that Garmin, Garmin has that. A couple other makers have that. And I, I think that's the feature that most users really want to see the most. Like that, I, I, I'm always kind of hearing about how people wish that it had um, GPS and better location accuracy. So... We'll see if that comes. Um, yeah. We've got some articles up already about, uh, well, after the WWDC came out, we have articles up about um, features in that. We have a few about the um, about the developer previews. And, and uh, my understanding is our plans are to, to fill the zone when the public betas come out and people can actually run this stuff. We'll be answering more questions and yes, exactly. running more articles. I was just trying to get, uh, I was going to write something about photos um, with a new facial recognition feature, and it doesn't really work everywhere. And um, Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I installed, so I've got Mac OS Sierra installed in a 2015 MacBook as a external boot. So I can, I can dual boot um, and still run the uh, iOS, or sorry, uh, uh, El Capitan on it in my normal day-to-day use. And I installed it on a new iPad Pro 9.7 inch mm-hmm. and an old iPhone 5. The iPhone 5 uh, won't do anything with photos, never start, uh, faces rather, it won't start scanning for people. The MacBook doesn't do anything, even though it's clearly in spec for what it should. It doesn't scan people and there's no way to hmm. force it to do it. Um, the iPad Pro immediately started scanning and then found a few faces and then gave up and it has... I've got 27,000 photos in my um, iCloud photo library. That may be part of it. But I let it run for quite a while, you know, for hours. And it's still like 5% along a bar that goes to 100%. So um, some of the software may not be entirely ready in beta. We know that. So uh, can't write about that feature that well until it actually works consistently. 
I wonder what's up with the iPhone 5. Do you think it's just because it's an older iPhone that it, Photos just isn't quite – it should be compatible with it though, right? Yeah, if it runs iOS 10, it should. And it's um, – everything else works fine and it, it was totally fine – um, with all the other features uh, that are supposed to happen, but it's just not doing the analysis. It may be that they've disabled it on older uh, models. They sometimes have released optimizations during a beta testing cycle. Uh, so early in the cycle, things that are really processor intensive that they think will you know, kill or really hurt a machine or a device, they don't enable. And people say, oh, it doesn't work on this or it works really badly. And then a cycle or two in, a later dev release, often maybe not even the public beta uh, release, suddenly that feature works where it's like, oh, this is great. It's like, well, what happened? They clearly had to go back and write some optimized code for a specific older processor or something just uh, to avoid the whole thing locking up when it's, uh, when it's working. Um, but given that it wouldn't work on my 2015 MacBook, I have to think it's, it may just be uh, maybe something there. It's tricky because as my understanding is the facial recognition is running, Apple's not transmitting anything back. This is part of the advantage. So if you have mm-hmm. iCloud photo library, and you've got it in multiple places. Does every library have to build its own facial recognition? I need to try. This is what I'm waiting to try out to see exactly what syncs and what doesn't. Because um, that's going to be, uh, that's you know, they're trying to not retrieve any information about us. But then the downside is you can't sync things unless they've developed a secure syncing system in which they never see the data. Right. Buh. <laughs> mm. Uh, you know, there's one other thing I want to mention this week. I'm working on a, a, a private icon about it a bit is um, uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg. That picture was taken of him. <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, oh, with the camera covered up? Yeah. And also someone tweeted he had his mic jack, microphone jack covered up. It wasn't a microphone jack. It's a microphone, right? There's, if it was a jack, there'd have to be something plugged into it. Sure. Um, and laptops have mics built in. So uh, another uh, fellow, George Ooh, is a longtime uh, uh, tech uh, writer, researcher. He just put tape over a microphone and on a laptop and tested it. And he's like, you know, it does reduce the sound somewhat, but it doesn't cut it out. And so I'm going to write something about like, if you really want your microphone disabled on your Mac laptop, what do you do? And that goes all the way up to you take it apart and you actually cut the trace on the motherboard <laughs> that supplies Whoa. power. I mean, some people will do that. In fact, I think Edward Snowden posted a video of himself showing how to disable uh, the camera and mic um, on a laptop. Uh, so I'll probably link to that too. Wow. Yeah, you can get serious. Well, it's tricky. I mean, um, it's not that this is the thing about security in the modern age. It's not that it, you could be targeted. Like Leah, you may have somebody in your life who's trying to take you out. They want your dun, personal dun, information. Dun. There's a lawsuit in progress, right? But for most people, it's like the crackers are typically, they have a yield issue. They put out as much as they can and then they tap in to whatever they can gather. So, you know, Snowden's concern is obviously governmental intrusion without warrants and due process. Um, but more generally, if someone decides they find your LinkedIn password, they get into an account of yours, they're able to compromise your machine, they may be able to figure out, oh, you know, I, they, I could drain $10,000 from this person's bank account, you know? So maybe they do tap your mic or your screen or your put a keylogger in because they've figured out that you have a balance somewhere because they intercepted email. Like there's all these things. There's so many people working on it that no one has to be out to get you individually because of you just right. because they figured out they can, you know, they can scam you. Yeah, I know. It sounds scary and really like futuristic and complex, but it happens every day. 
So it's so easy is the problem. Yeah. <clears throat> Last thing I want to talk about is um, uh, just quickly is the Dropbox. It's sort of a uh, before we get a uh, Fraser Spears coming up. I should point out if those of you have been listening along, he'll be. Uh, we'll have him up in just a moment. Uh, Dropbox changes. They made a whole bunch of changes that are uh, coming shortly. Um, we've got a story up at MacWorld.com. I'll have in the show notes. Um, but are you a Dropbox user? Because I, I live in Dropbox. Yeah, I am a Dropbox user. But what I love about Dropbox is it's just one of those easy tools that's just such a part of my workflow that I often don't even realize when they've changed anything unless I read something about it because it's just one of those programs that just works and works so well. It's just like, you know a seamless part of of my workflow so reading through i was like oh wow look at look at all the new things i can try <laughs> with it so <laughs> that's my reaction too is i forget that i'm using dropbox because it never it never really needs any attention when yeah, something exactly yeah and so one of the things that i thought was gonna be great is they're gonna integrate um the uh, uh sharing feature instead of having to you know now you have to go to you right click on the finder on a file and it takes you to the website and you have to manage it through a web app. They're going to build in uh, desktop in Windows and OS 10. You'll have desktop um, file sharing, folder sharing interface. So it avoids that round trip, which I think is great. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Cause that's just, there's a few things like if you want to look at the previous history of a file, share a few other stuff, you have to go to the website and it always seemed like a little bit of a hack and it was. So now they're getting there, uh, but they'll be able to, they're adding a uh, scanning in OS iOS. So you can, yep. t- take a picture right and it'll turn it into a pdf which is awesome mm-hmm. um different photo upload process uh ocr if you've got a business account um i use pdf pen uh i forgot what they call it on the um pdf pen pro it's their uh i use that on the mac but then on i have to look at my phone it's called scan plus or something uh from smile uh the other day i was researching uh for an article uh i had to grab somebody's autobiography of which there's only like um 16 copies that I could find in the United States in libraries. There's one in my local library on circuit was not circulating, but in the stack. So I went to the library. It's a thousand page book. So I pull out scan plus and I just snap pictures of like a hundred pages I needed, then ran OCR against it. And then I've got a searchable index of these, these research pages better than Xeroxing. Right. Um, so that'll now be available. Uh, so you'll be able to scan to PDF, but also if you've got a business account OCR directly within Dropbox, so that'll be a neat function. Very handy. Some competition. One of the more simple features that they added, um, this is going to make a lot of you cringe, but you can create uh, Word documents and Excel files and things like that directly from within Dropbox for iOS, and then it will save to your folder. And uh, for me, uh, here at Macworld HQ, uh, unfortunately, a big part of our, like, Company workflow is uh, with OneDrive and SharePoint and a lot of Microsoft products. So for company-wide stuff, I do a lot with Word and Excel. So if I need to create something on the fly and I want to share it to my Dropbox, it's just so much easier to do that from my phone and then import it to wherever I need to. But, oh, that's cool. Yeah. And I, yeah. Think, I mean, it's it's a lingua franca, right? Everyone needs to – I mean, I'm always – I'm using pages and numbers and exporting as Word and Excel or uh-huh. using uh, one of the – one office, one of the uh, – there's a, a Libra software, Libre software, uh, one of the free softwares out there um, that I've had to use because sometimes pages – uh, Word exports are really wonky and they can't be opened in Word. It's very exciting. Uh, so then I go to an open source version or free surf, free software version, I should say. Uh, well, I think uh, that rounds up uh, the news and information we have this week. And uh, and Leah, thanks for 
joining me this week. Thanks for having me, Glenn. It's a pleasure as always. It's been great to talk to you. And uh, now we're going to uh, I'll switch to the interview that I did uh, previously with Fraser Spears. Joining me now is Fraser Spears, who is the head of secondary at Cedars School of Excellence in Scotland. Hello, Fraser. Hi there. How are you? Wonderful. And thank you for joining me. Uh, I wanted to talk to you because uh, we're going to talk about Swift Playgrounds announced at uh, the WWDC where you were at, I know. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, I not that many people are rerunning it yet. <laughs> and and uh, Susie Oaks is on vacation this week, is passionately interested in it as well. Um, and I've been interested in, in uh, I, I do not have a deep pedagogical knowledge of programming uh, tools for education. I've tried some, my kids have tried some. This looked to me really fascinating, but I know there's a tendency for everyone to jump on the new shiny. Mm-hmm. And uh, you wrote a great essay after WWDC about diving into Swift Playground. So I thought it'd be great to have you on and, and talk about your experience. But let, let's start with your background, though, because you come uh, at this as a developer who went into the educational uh, educational world. And now you, you're you just telling me before we started, you have 110 iPads sitting around you at this moment. Are they are they massing to attack? Uh, the, the more likely they're going to topple over and crush me. So <laughs> if you hear a crashing sound during the podcast, just keep recording. Well, you're one of the, I would say, clear pioneers in bringing the iPad into the educational market before Apple had all the tools that would help you administer that. When did you start using iPads at the school? Yes, that's certainly true. We started in 2010. So the year the the iPad came out and we were, uh, the way you used to administer iPads was you plugged them all into an instance of iTunes and synced them all that way. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Uh, Nowadays, it's a lot more... um, both complex and professional. So we now have device management servers and volume purchase program and managed Apple ID and all of these things. Uh, but that lets you scale up. But basically, we're, we were a one-to-one program that year. Um, so we, we spent a lot of time with large USB hubs plugging things together. Uh, it's much, much, much better now, much easier. So just to give you a kind of comparison, I, the first year I spent about two weeks setting up our, our deployment. And this year I'm probably going to spend between one and a half and two days Oh my gosh, thing. that's wonderful. Yeah. This is a this is like a little side note, but one of the things I keep hearing about the use of technology in every environment is that it's finally actually gotten better than it used to be. So that to- that there's more efficiencies not just with iPad, but in a lot of ways that certain kinds of technological improvements have finally caught up like enterprise tools or enterprise style management or just faster everything has kind of come. So there's a lot uh, of corners to be shaved off that you used to have to spend their ticking boxes and just sitting in front of a computer. Yeah, I think what, what would probably mostly characterize the, the change in iOS deployment is that everything can now be done over the air. Whereas previously, you would be bringing things back to base, you'd be plugging in devices, and even into Apple Configurator, which is a tool that Apple released alongside the iPad 2 for setting up iOS devices. Even that, that allowed you to mass deploy things like apps, but you had to plug in everything over USB but now many of these devices that I'm looking at right now haven't been plugged into a Mac for three years since the day we got them and first set them up. Oh, that's magnificent. And yeah. uh, and you're also telling me, that I was curious about this cycling thing. And I know iPads aren't cheap, but as a pedagogical tool, um, uh, they obviously replace certain kinds of things you'd be spending money for otherwise. Uh, in, in some cases, you know, I know in some school districts, that's replaced having to buy and cycle through computers and have the maintenance and responsibility of computers to deal with. Um, you were just saying before we started that this is your set. This, uh, these iPads have uh, gone through three years with the same kids. 
and now they're being retired. Uh, how does that cycle work in terms of uh, you know management or or budgeting even um, for? Uh, I guess three years is both like long and short in the computer world. It's kind of uh, short in education. I know some things yeah. get used for twenty years, but uh, how does that work uh, for for you all to manage that? Yeah. So so the way that the school works is that we as a school sign a leasing contract with a, a reseller. And the, we, we have one set of devices for all the pupils in the school. And those devices are with us for three years. And then they, they go back to the leasing company. So what I'm doing at the moment with these devices is by rights, they should be going back to the leasing company. But I'm actually trying to run an online fundraising project so that I can buy that lease out for about £10,000 and send all of these devices to a school in India. Oh, or my goodness. A, a, a training organization in India called the Barefoot College. And if I can just sort of say what they do, Glenn, if that's okay. Absolutely. Um, they, what they do there is they train um, women in rural India to be solar engineers. And what they do is they use the iPads as part of the training material because uh, many or all of the women who will be trained in that project are actually f- almost fully illiterate. That many of the learning materials have to be illustrated and animated. And it's obvious kind of why an iPad would be a useful thing in that situation. So what they do is they build things like solar water heaters, desalination units, cookers, lights, and even they have, they have an Apple TV and data projector project that they can build as well. And what they do is they leave that out in the sun to charge up, and then they can use it in the evenings oh once goodness. the sun goes down for night school to teach to teach uh, the next generation of learners. So This is the most wonderful thing I've ever heard. I, I, not to sidetrack listeners, but listeners, if you ever want to read about where the real technology developments need to happen, it's in it's in uh, smokeless cooking and lighting. Those two things alone, besides everything else, would revolutionize the lives of billions of people. I mean, you know, clean water, mm-hmm. yes. There's a lot of people working on clean water, less on smokeless cooking, and some are working on um, inexpensive, uh, you know, rechargeable nighttime uh, reading for uh, – or lighting for reading and studying. Uh, mm-hmm. So wonderful! Well, you're hitting you're hitting all the marks there. I hope the campaign goes very well. That's Thank you. Uh, yeah. I know yeah. it's both like a large sum and not that large compared to the purpose at mine. So well, we're we're about funded halfway so far. So um, we've got about another month to go. So I'm looking for a push over the next uh, few weeks just to get over the top with that. Oh, that's great. Well, we'll put a link in the show notes if folks are looking to fund help fund this campaign. That's great. Well, Thank good. You. Extra social benefit from this discussion, not just education, uh, but uh, training people in rural India. Mar- marvelous. Well, let's get into Swift Playgrounds. Um, mm-hmm. And I just want to let people know your background. You know, you've got this extensive history working with uh, the iPad as a pedagogical tool. You're a programmer. Um, uh, when you saw Swift Playgrounds, did it, was I'm curious about the reaction in terms of having seen and used so many tools designed to teach kids whatever in education, whether programming or other things, uh, what what's your reaction or what was your reaction when you first saw it? Did you have an eye-opening experience? And and then I know you got further into it and actually used the tool. Yeah, so I, I was I was pleased that it, it had come out. But when I sat in the keynote and I heard you know Tim Cook talk about the the kind of just the app as well as the kind of broader initiative that Apple's got called Everyone Can Code. So there, there's different parts to it and Swift Playgrounds is one part of it. There's also um, sort of training materials inside the app, and there's also a range of iBooks available in the store as well for teachers to understand how to use it in the classroom. So there's lots of different moving parts to the initiative, and Swift Playgrounds is one of them. When I first saw it, I, I thought it was very interesting, and I just want, what I wanted to ask and wanted to sort of experience was how to what extent is this uh, more than just another kind of coding playground? Because there are a few <laughs> of those in iOS already. Mm-hmm. There's You've probably heard of Scratch from MIT, which is not an iOS, but there's a similar app called Hopscotch. And then there are various other ones like that that let you kind of 
play around with code and, and do a little bit of code and so on and some step up a little bit further, uh, we certainly used Hopscotch in school and we've also used Pythonista, which is essentially a full Python IDE right on iOS. So it's not as if there aren't already programming tools on iOS. There just haven't been any from Apple up to this point. And what I kind of discovered over the course of the week at WWDC was that the Swift Playgrounds app is a lot deeper than you first realize that it is. And what I mean by that is that, yes, you can do Apple's Learn to Code program, which is, is the little character that Tim Cook showed on stage, the character called Byte, and you program him to move around the world and so on. But then later on, you can actually build your own playgrounds and you can link into just about any iOS API that exists and program that right inside Swift Playgrounds. So, for example, I've already done the basic trick of uh, loading up a web browser right inside Swift Playground and loading <laughs> web pages in it. Um, I'm, I'm working on a, another playground where you can basically make your own little Instagram by coding core image filters to go on uh, onto photographs that you pick from your library and so on. So things like that are, are all possible. And uh, I think there's a lot of interesting opportunities in there as well. I had a chance to put about, um, you know, you have to have the right combination of machines. I should mention, I didn't realize that uh, it looks like Playground isn't available on older iPads. I don't know if you've had a chance to check that out or if I did something wrong in, in taking my iPad 4, which is, has a 32-bit processor, uh, to the iOS, iOS 10 developer beta. From what I can tell, uh, Playground wasn't installed. And I've compared notes with a few people, so I'm not sure if it requires a 64-bit processor or not. Yes, it does. It oh, does. Okay. I, I did the same thing because all these all these <laughs> iPads I'm talking about here are, are I, iPad 4s and they're all 32 bits. Which is so, great. It's still a great iPad. It was the first oh, it's uh, fine, Retina. Yeah. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, mm -hmm. it's got yeah. 32 bits. So I, we have a couple of iPad Mini 2s here as well. So I, I pulled one of those and compared and, and Swift Playgrounds appeared on the Mini 2 but not on the iPad 4. So it is it is 64 bit only. So not every I, iPad that can run iOS 10 can run Playgrounds. I assume that's an um, Xcode requirement because Xcode is now 64-bit mandatory. Am I right? Or no? I, I, or I, don't know that the, I don't know that the two are connected necessarily. Okay. Um, I think it, it might just be as much for performance reasons as anything else. That The 64-bit devices might be the, like, the slowest ones that you might want to run Swift Playgrounds on. I can, I can totally understand that. But so the environment, I mean, I've been programming since I was 11, I think. So 37 years of programming. Okay. And I've learned a bunch of languages. And I've never become like a C or Objective-C programmer. I've learned it at times. And then uh, I learned C years ago. Um, I'm mostly an interpreted language guy like Perl and PHP and uh, JavaScript, but I can get a lot of stuff done. I got servers running and crud like that. And I, uh, so the early lessons for me, um, they were good because they're getting me used to the nomenclature and the, and the uh, technique. And I could see how someone, um, the graphical approach is lovely. And I know there's other things that have been like that where you're, you know, making something move around. I think the original logo was, uh, like that. Um, mm -hmm. uh, the turtle, uh, language <laughs> and, uh, uh, but I feel like it's – I'm not sure who it's pitched at because the writing style, like it, I think you'd have to be maybe in the 10 to 12-year-old group, maybe even a little older to be able to understand how they're writing about programming. Yeah, I, I think it, I asked people this at WWDC and what I was told was that the, the target age range is about 11 to 14. Oh, okay, there you go. For, for the way that the, the writing is pitched and, and the level of difficulty and so on. Um, I think it could probably go a little bit lower with enough support from a teacher. And of course, this is actually the this is the big problem with computer science education is that there are motivated pupils, young people 
who want to learn programming but don't have a teacher or a class to mm -hmm. go to. And then there are people who have got a teacher. And is it the case that you can use the same materials in the class with a teacher as by yourself? Now, Learn to Code 1, the, the, the first part of the Apple program, is very much designed, I would say, for uh, self-motivated individuals to work through by themselves. So it doesn't actually assume or even require the presence of a teacher. Right. But as a teacher, I think I could take that into my classroom. I could use that as the kind of foundation of my year's worth of work. And then I could add on things on top. This, this is actually the thing that I think is really well done about this, is that I can take that as my basic course, if you like. And then I can spend my time, instead of my time writing the basic course, I can spend my time writing you know, additional exercises, extension work, homework tasks, and then just spending my time in the class getting down with individual pupils and working with them through things that they're not sure about or trying to take them up to a higher level of thinking, which is really, how do you solve the problem, right? Because really and truly, one of the main reasons to teach everybody to code is actually to teach people to solve problems in a logical way, whether or not they actually express that solution through code or not. So trying to have people step out of, let's just get this thing working and try and think about it more deeply. I think that may actually become one of the more important things for the teacher to do in the classroom. Oh, that's fascinating. It's also, and it's well-guided enough that a teacher who didn't know how to program could conceivably go through it with students as well. If they wanted to take a class up and there wasn't a mentor, outside person, or their own experience, they could be using this guide and they could go through it together because uh, you know it's it's detailed enough. I don't think they'd spend a year on it. I mean, it wouldn't be a year's curriculum, but it could be. Mm -hmm. Uh, several weeks or a few months um, as a project in class uh, where a teacher can be you know, projecting it um, or working with students on it and saying, I don't know, let's figure this out together. Hey, what an idea. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and that's a, a very explicit goal of, of the, the Learn to Code program because there's also, a, there, I mentioned there are these iBooks in the bookstore and one of them is a teacher's guide for using Learn to Code 1 in the classroom as well. So for a teacher who, unlike me, doesn't have a background in software engineering and computer science and so mm -hmm. on could pick this up and they could actually almost become a kind of co-learner cool with the students as well. I, I love that. You know, my kids went through, uh, they both did uh, scratch classes or actually I'm forgetting my, what my older son did a scratch class. I think my younger son did forgotten already, but a few years ago is after school programs. And then uh, there also, there's a very motivated uh, programmer uh, works for a, uh, one of the larger software companies locally who uh, has been teaching, um, uh, Minecraft mods. So he's teaching them essentially Java on a, uh, or parts of Java on a, um, on uh, Raspberry Pis. And mm -hmm. um, so they get a computer, they learn how to, you know, poke at code, they learn how to do iterative things and debug, and it's been great. But the other hand, it's Java. I mean, Minecraft is, you know, there's limited things, you're punching in values and doing recipes. And um, I think Swift, I know one of Apple's design goals with Swift was to make a language that was easier for people to get into, I guess, or revealed more about it. I mean, it's ex you can tell me the, the correct term. It's more explicit, right? That it says more about what it's doing as opposed to when you're programming, a lot of stuff is beneath the surface that is just happening without your direct involvement. I don't know if I'm getting that distinction quite right. Yeah, so some, some of the, the more kind of scripting languages, if you like, languages like Ruby and Python and so on, they, they do a lot more under the hood, what you call a, a dynamic language. So Swift sort of requires you to, well, it doesn't require it, but you can say, you know, here is a variable and it is of type integer or it is of type string. And in some ways, I think that for beginner programmers, forcing them to write out all those things, so like here's a variable, 
it has this type and this is its initial value. And you can write all of those in a Swift statement and, and it comes out working correctly. Whereas in Python, for example, you say, here's a variable and I'm assigning something to it. Whatever I assign, whatever I assign to it is a type of the variable. And that's the kind of implicit behavior that can sometimes trip up new programmers because they assign the wrong thing to it or they assign, you know, the classic one is uh, they think that double quotes go around everything. So you want to assign the integer 23. Right. So you put quote, two, three, quote. And it's actually a string, but they think they put in a, an integer and confusion reigns. I've been programming it, Perl for over 20 years, and I still sometimes forget how to declare the correct form of variable because of loose typing. It's uh, it actually is yeah. still maddening. Yeah, uh, but yeah. So, but in Swift, Swift, I know it has the the dot declaration form too, so that you're addressing objects as uh, you know subcategories of things, which is something people, if you use JavaScript, is familiar. Um, it's it's kind of an embedded system of now talking about objects, and so I think there's maybe not that kids would know this, but I think adults who have any experience of programming now, that's a familiar convention that that's uh, used in Swift as well. Yeah, and you have some other things in Swift that weren't really the same in Objective-C, such as a bit of an iteration syntax in the language and so mm. on. Yeah, so those are things that have come over from languages like Ruby, like Python, that were long and very wordy to write before in Objective-C, and, and they're now very, a natural, very natural part of the language, if you like. Uh, so, you know, we didn't talk about, people will install this um, as the public beta comes out. They'll have access to it, I'm assuming, because of how Apple's talked about it. It should just be installed uh, on your system when you install the iOS 10 public beta in July. And um, uh, it is pretty cute. Uh, the one thing, Byte, the character, is very adorable, but uh, he or she has uh, was wearing a loincloth, which I find very disturbing. It's very odd little, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, could be, you know, apron might be better or something, but he's wearing a little loincloth. And uh but it's this adorable character. The one thing that maddens me with the exercise is I got far enough along, which I'm doing a lot of code, where you know he's doing stuff, he's walking around, he's picking things up, he's jumping on the grid, and I'm like, hey, this is great, I got it working. There's no way to speed it up. So as you're debugging, it takes he walks at the same speed. I think there may be a speed up early on because I noticed he seemed to be walking faster. I'd uh, say so I've already anthropomorphized him and gendered him as a he, but there you go. Mm -hmm. uh, it's but the um, and Apple's clear it's not they just say bite so I'm gendering it yeah. accidentally but um, the uh, that would be useful I think is is actually having a speed dial because you know when you've debugged something for the seventh time and it takes a minute for the little doohickey to walk around you're like all right this is not as much of a reward I feel like that's something that um, maybe they need to, to think about um, just from, uh, you know, I have kids, they get bored easy and uh, you don't want to put them in a situation where the reward is for them to um, have to wait through something as opposed to you did it right. Now you get to see the results. I mean, now there should be instant gratification, but there should be a slightly, you know, as you get better at programming, the, you should have the ability to see the animations speed up as well if, if you want them to. Yeah, I think that's a perfectly fair criticism, and it's, I share that criticism. And I think perhaps you know the pace is great for the first couple of lessons, but you know as as your skill gets better, there's a greater chance that you're going to get it right the first time, or maybe the second time. So you know, even a, a one one point five x and a two x as the book progresses, for example, that's maybe maybe worthwhile. Yeah, and so a final question I have about this is: uh, this is a pedagogical tool. It teaches uh, critical, it teaches you know forms of abstract thinking and higher level reasoning because of how you have to abstract and learn. It teaches actually Swift, so you're learning actual programming language you could put to to use. Will people, kids or adults, using this use Swift Playgrounds on the iPad to make real apps that they export to Xcode? I mean, what is going to be the gap between producing something in this? 
and having an app to release or having something that you could take and work with someone else on the fiddly details to release? Well, I think at the moment there's no direct path between the work you do in a Swift Playground and an actual app. There's there's certainly, um, you can work at certain algorithms in a Playground, for example, that then you could use in an app. There is a, another book in the series that I mentioned on the bookstore called uh, Coding Apps with Swift, I think it's called. And that is the book for teachers and students to take you from being a very you know accomplished Swift Playgrounds programmer to doing apps on the Mac with Xcode. And at the moment, uh, there's not there's not a direct way to go from one to the other, but it's not inconceivable to me that in years to come, Swift Playgrounds may actually be able to emit an app because Swift Playgrounds can do things like, for example, if you have what's called a storyboard in iOS, mm-hmm. which is a, a set of descriptions for the user interface of, say, an iPhone app, you can compile that and deliver it to a Swift Playground and then work with it inside a Playground. So you can do things even at that level. And you know, were you able to do that and then build in some other things, it's not completely inconceivable to me that you could emit an iOS app at some point in the future. Certainly not possible right now, but if you look at, for example, Pythonista, you can, that's a, a Python programming environment, but it does have the ability to lay out and manipulate user interfaces right in the app and run it and so on. But I think honestly, Glenn, what I, what I see happening is I see kids airdropping playgrounds to each other, and then they just use the playground. You know, I, I don't I don't see that that's not going to be a thing that happens. Well, that's great, and I've seen that with Scratch too. Is um, my kids who've done that? They have uh, they will share. There's various ways to share Scratch games when they're doing a class. They'll share it, and and then people modify it. You can upload it. You know, with Creative Commons license. I figure if that's by default. And people do that. So this seems like yet another form, but the with the in-person aspect of it, I don't know. Someone will probably come up with a way, I'm sure, to upload them and share them more globally um, if there's a way to import them. But uh, it's that's still that's how you learn too, is by sharing, collaborating. It's a great. Um, this has been one of my problems, not with education in general, but with certain aspects of education where kids are encouraged to work alone. I'm like, how often in the working world do you work alone or in any artistic project or a nonprofit, whatever you're doing? So the more collaboration on things in which collaboration lifts people up and, you know, helps people cover the lacunae, the better. So um, sounds great to me. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, Fraser, thanks for joining us to talk about Swift Playgrounds. And we'll uh, check back in a few months after uh, when this thing is actually out and we'll see what the, the release version. I'm curious how many books they'll have available uh, at these initial lessons and uh, whether any changes are made. Because this is obviously, this is ostensibly a beta, but it, I haven't had any problems with it so far. Yeah, no, I, I found a couple of wee things in, in one or two of the pages. And there's a couple of areas at the moment where I think the difficulty ramp steps up a little sharply. But apart from that, for a first go, you know, learn to code one is very complete. And, and I think it's a very good beginning, even as it is right now. Yeah, they haven't pushed the kids over the edge into like device drivers yet, but maybe that'll come in quick. (laughs) (laughs) Here's how you tweak your audio hardware, kids. Uh, Well, Fraser, thanks again. Thanks for being with us. Pleasure. And thanks again to Fraser for being with us. And this has been the Macworld Podcast, episode 514 for June 29th, 2016. You can find us at macworld.com. Send us email, podcast at macworld.com. And find us, uh, you know, every week at the same spot. Thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll be back next week.